0: So today we're going to be in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, we're going to be uh, starting in verse 12, going to the second verse of chapter 2. Now, brothers and sisters, when I entered into the ministry here at Servants Church, oh, maybe about three or four years ago now, John, is it? One of the things that happened was that all of my expectations of ministry were shattered <laughs> in the first few months of being, uh, yeah, being a deacon and also being a pastor here. Um, when I was a younger Christian, I kind of had this rosy-eyed idea of what it was to be in the ministry. I thought it was this kind of uh, epitome of of Christianity. Um, that it was a really nice lifestyle, you prayed a lot, you did a few Bible studies. It was, it was great. I mean, ministry is great, but when I entered into it, I realized that actually it's really quite hard work. I realized that there's a weight and there's a responsibility that comes with ministry that really isn't anywhere else in the Christian life. I realized this when I became a deacon And a pastor. And the thing that I really saw was that one of the things that's really complex and really hard in ministry is the relationships that you have with people in the fellowship. And they're hard because you're, in a sense, joining two sinners together in a committed relationship that God has called you to. And when that happens, people get hurt. Wrong things get said, wrong things get done. And those relationships, they require a lot of patience, a lot of endurance, a lot of perseverance, a lot of love, grace, and mercy. Now I bring this up about the difficulties of relationships in ministry because when you look into the historical background of this letter of 2 Corinthians, you see that Paul really had a lot of difficulties in the way he related to these believers. I mean, he really was a suffering pastor. And the reason why he had a lot of difficulties in the relationships he had with the Corinthian believers is because within that church, there was a lot of rebellion. There was a lot of people opposing Paul's leadership. Uh, There were two main sources of that. One was probably the man who committed sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians 5. And the other group was a group of false teachers that Paul refers to later on in this book as false apostles. And when you know that, when you know that that was going on in the Corinthian church, you can see that one of the main themes of this book is that the Spirit wants to take Paul in his weakness and he wants to show the Spirit's strength in leading these people. And one of the main reasons why Paul wrote this letter, anointed by the Spirit, was to show that he really was a real credible leader, that he's bringing evidence in this book that actually he was called of God to be an apostle, he was set apart for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he was given grace and apostleship to bring the obedience of faith in the Gentile nations. This is what he does in this letter. And the main theme of our message today is really Paul is going to begin to bring evidence of the fact that he is a real, credible leader of Jesus Christ's church. And we see him begin to do that in verse 12, where he says, For our boasting is this. And what we're going to see in this text is that what Paul writes are the things that he and his co-workers had confidence in, they had glorification in these things because it showed that they were real. They were credible. They were appointed by Jesus to do this work. Now, Paul's main focus in our, in our message today is he wants to show how he and his co-workers had a credible character, a credible character in the Lord. And if there's one thing that a real leader needs, brothers and sisters, in the church, it's a godly character. They need to be godly men. One of the things that concerns me about the church today is there's too much emphasis placed upon men's giftings and skill set. And they see that as being the main thing that sort of gives a man the credibility to be a leader. But actually, it's his character. That's the main thing. It's the thing that will bring longevity. It will bring consistency. It will bring stability to his ministry. It's the thing that will really bring fruitfulness in the end in the churches that that man or that group of men will lead. This is why... In 1 Timothy chapter 3, when uh, Paul talks about the qualifications of being a pastor, he lists character traits more than he lifts, lists gifts. It's a man's character that brings credibility to his ministry. There are many men who are put into ministry too quickly because they're good speakers or because they have a particular charismatic personality. But they haven't had years of training by the Lord, like Moses did, in the desert for 40 years to develop a godly character, to do the work that they're called to do. And so Paul, in this message today, is wanting to show these believers, look, I'm credible because of my character being godly. I'm more credible than the guys that are in your church because I may not be a good speaker, but I have a good character. And that should be enough evidence for you to show that what I'm writing to you is from God. What I'm writing to you is his revelation about Jesus Christ, your one and only Saviour. And in saying this, brothers and sisters, I want to address two groups of people in this room today, and I want to exhort you in a couple of ways as we go through this message. The first group is those who feel that they're called to ministry, those that feel they're called to leadership, and I believe that there are some people in here who feel that calling in their hearts. And if you feel that, as we go through this message, I want you to ask yourself the question, are these character traits in my life? Are they there? I can guarantee you they won't be there perfectly because you're not perfect. But do you have the willingness to pray that you grow in them? Think about that as we go through this message. But the second group is everyone else who don't feel that they're called to leadership or to ministry. And what I'm going to give you today, brothers and sisters, is tools that you can use to know whether the leaders that are leading you are credible or not, to know whether me or John or Neil or Joe are really called by God. And that's important. It's important because there are many voices in the Christian church today that are trying to pull all of you in different directions. I mean I went on to the internet this morning and I wasn't gonna share this, but I feel that I have to. And I went on to YouTube. And I man, I like YouTube, but I don't like YouTube. Because there's a lot of stuff on there that really is quite confusing. And you have guys on there who are saying, in Jesus' name, that the world is gonna end on the twenty-third of September 2015. You have guys on there who are saying, it's pointless thinking about the second return of Christ, don't worry about it. There's all these things. How do you know whether that person's credible or not? Well, it's through his character. Is he a godly man? Does he have the same character that Jesus had? And so I'd encourage you to think about that as we go through these verses today. So the first thing, or the first character trait that Paul wants to bring up about himself and his co-workers are in, is in verse 12 and 13b. John, do we have those, those little, do we actually have those A5 things or not? Okay, cool, good. So you should be able to follow along, there's a little A5 leaflet um, just sort of giving an outline of the text. I'm just going to read verses 12 and 13a again. It says, For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and more abundantly towards you, for we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Now what Paul's saying in these verses is he's basically saying that him... And his co workers, they had the testimony in their conscience that their conduct in life, both to the world or to unbelievers, and also to the believers in Corinth, was a lifestyle of simplicity and godly sincerity. What Paul's saying here is he's saying that the first character trait of a godly man who's a credible leader is one who lives a life of simplicity and a life without hypocrisy, which is what that word godly sincerity means. And so we have to ask ourselves, what does a life of simplicity and a life without hypocrisy look like? Well, Paul and his co-workers, they lived a life that was simple and without complexion. Their simplicity was in their faith. They simply believe that Jesus died for their sins, that Jesus rose again on the third day, that he ascended into heaven, and that he's coming back a second time. It was simple in its leading. They were entirely dependent upon the Spirit on a daily basis to lead them in their ministry and to carry out the work that Jesus had called them to. And it was simple in its dependency on provision. Paul and his co workers were dependent upon God for their food, for their work, for their clothes, for their dwelling place. It was a very simple life that they led. What does it mean to live a life without hypocrisy? Well, to understand what that life looks like, we have to understand what hypocrisy is first. And up on your screen, you should have Matthew 23, verses 27 and 28. And in these verses, Jesus tells us about what hypocrisy really is. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, also outwardly, you appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy. And lawlessness, and I want you to notice that what Jesus is saying here is that hypocrisy really in its simple entirety is a difference between what's on the inside of you and the outside of you. It's like saying that you're from Italy, but really you're from Spain, ethnically. It's like saying that you're an Ipswich Town Football Club supporter, but really you support Norwich. That's hypocrisy. What is on the inside is different to what is on the outside. And the best example of that in the New Testament was the Pharisees. The Pharisees thought they knew God, they thought they were righteous, they thought that they were doing God's works, but actually inside they were the furthest away from God. They were completely unrighteous, they were completely sinful. This is what hypocrisy is. And you see, Paul and his co-workers didn't live that life. When you survey the New Testament Scriptures, you see that Paul, he knew what he really was. He knew he was a sinner. He called himself the chief of sinners. But he also knew that he needed Jesus to save him. He knew that he needed the Spirit to lead him in his ministry. There's an example of that here in verse 13 at the beginning where he says that he's not writing any other things to them that they haven't read or understand. And what that means is is that what he's writing in this book, doctrinally, is the same as what he's written previously in 1 Corinthians. It's the same as what he's written everywhere else in that part of the world, that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Put your faith in him. Live by him. And he's saying, look, I'm not a hypocrite. I'm writing to you. The same thing that I've written to you and that you've understood before. We're not hypocrites. We live a life without hypocrisy. Now, I want to say two things about this life. This life of simplicity and without hypocrisy. The first thing is that the reason why Paul and his co-workers boasted in this life is because Jesus, listen, lived a life of simplicity and he lived a life without hypocrisy. We see Jesus' simplicity in Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, where it says, And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And in this verse, obviously, Jesus is talking about the cost of discipleship, but it also shows the simplicity of his life. Jesus stayed where he was, he ate what was in front of him, and he put on the clothes that were given to him. He lived a life of simplicity. Jesus also lived a life without hypocrisy. I mean, that's obvious theologically because Jesus was God. He was without sin. He had the spirit of truth within him, and all he did was speak truth all the time, Jesus was the perfect example of a human being who portrayed perfectly outside of him what was inside of him, in his words, in his actions, and in his deeds. Jesus was without hypocrisy. And you see, Paul and his co-workers boasted in this because they're saying, look, surely credible leaders of Jesus' church should mirror the life of Jesus. Jesus. Surely, credible leaders should be those who live lives of simplicity and without hypocrisy. And he's saying, look, this is the life we live. We are credible leaders. Why on earth are you listening to these false apostles? We've lived this life with you. So know that we are real. We are real leaders of Jesus' church. But the second thing I want to say about this life is we have to know, and this is really important, That as sinners, we have a tendency to live a life that is complex and is hypocritical. I mean, have you ever noticed that on a daily basis you overcomplicate your life? And you get to the end of the day and you think, why on earth did I do that? Why did I complicate things today? Have you ever noticed you saying things to other people? And in your heart and mind, you're saying, I don't actually really believe that. Have you ever noticed that? That you are just naturally hypocritical? That's because we are sinners. I mean, the best example of this is the original sinner, Satan. Do you remember when Satan tried to take over the throne of God? He was overcomplicating his existence when he tried that. I mean, if... Satan actually was able to take over the throne of God, he wouldn't have been able to lead the universe because he's not God. Satan, in trying to do that, was a hypocrite because although he was saying that he could and he took a third of the angels with him, in his heart, I believe that he probably knew he couldn't and he was being a hypocrite. Why? Because he was a sinner. And that is the same with us. We have a tendency to be this way. Why do you think that Jesus said, time and time again, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is what? Hypocrisy. Because that's, that's the way we always go, oftentimes, every day. This is why Paul says in this verse, verse 12, that he didn't produce this life by fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God. And I really want you to listen to me when I say this. You cannot live a life that reflects Jesus in your own strength. You cannot do it. It's only by the grace of God in your life through the power of the Spirit that you can live any way in following Jesus. And this is what God wants to do in our lives. He wants his children, particularly pastors, elders, deacons, to live this life, but he wants all of his children to live this life. Why? Well, because we live in a society that is getting more complicated, and it's getting more hypocritical day by day. And trust me, I see the results of that in my GP surgery. People are getting more depressed. People are getting more hopeless. People are not happy. And I believe that's a direct result of society making things more complicated. And there's more hypocrisy in society. And guess what? God wants to use you as his child to demonstrate that it's good to live a life of simplicity and without hypocrisy. He wants your life to be attractive to unbelievers. So they say, what is it about your life that you can live very simply without hypocrisy? And you can say, well, let me tell you about the person that's produced that in my life. Let me tell you about Jesus. Come to Jesus and he will give you this new life, eternal life, forever. This is what the Lord wants for us, brothers and sisters. And as we leave this first section, I believe the Spirit wants to exhort us in this verse in 1 Thessalonians 4, 10-12, where it says, But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life to mind your own business and to, walk, to work with your own hands as we commanded you that you may walk properly towards those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. The Lord's calling us, brothers and sisters, to not overcomplicate things. Don't overcomplicate your life. That is the presence of sin. The Lord wants us to not be hypocrites. He wants us to be real, to be true. And I believe that if we do that, we will bear much fruit for him. So as we go on, the second thing, the second quality of character that Paul and his co-workers had is found in the second half of verse 13 and verse 14, where it says, Now I trust you will understand even to the end, as also you have understood us in part, that we are your boast as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, I want you to see that at the end of verse 14, he talks about this day of the Lord Jesus. And if you remember a few weeks ago, I talked about the day of the Lord. Do you remember the day of the Lord is a day when Jesus' wrath will come to the earth, where he will judge the unrighteous um, acts of men and their unwillingness to respond to the gospel. That It's a day not to look forward to. It's a day... Of fear. But the day of the Lord Jesus is different to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord Jesus when you look at it in the New Testament scriptures is seen as a day of hope, it's seen as a day of blessing, it's seen as a day only for believers, only for believers. And so this day of the Lord Jesus is a day sometime in the future when all believers will be gathered together with Jesus forever. Hallelujah. We will be with him in his glory forever. The day of the Lord Jesus is a day when we will stand before Jesus and he will judge our works as believers, the so-called judgment seat of Christ. Different Christians debate about when this day of the Lord Jesus occurs. Some believe it occurs at the rapture. Some believe it occurs actually at the second coming of Jesus physically. But the point I want to make is it's different to the day of the Lord, but it's a good day. This day of the Lord Jesus is good. But notice he says there that on the day of the Lord Jesus, he wants the Corinthian believers to boast in Paul. And he wants Paul and his co-workers to boast in the Corinthian believers. And what Paul's basically saying there is on the day of the Lord Jesus, when we're all standing there, And Paul goes up to stand before the Lord. He wants the Corinthian churches to go, yeah, I was part of his fruitfulness. I was part of Paul growing in the Lord Jesus. They boast in in that. They glorify in that, which is what that word means. And the same is for Paul. When Paul sees the Corinthian believers go up before Jesus, he can go, yes, I was part of that, Lord. You used me in their fruitfulness, and in their growth in you. This is what he's trying to say. And I find this amazing, because remember, Paul is suffering when he's writing 2 Corinthians. He's going through a difficult time in his relationship with these believers, and to me, this speaks of the second quality of character that a man needs to be, a leader in a church, and that is that he must be committed to relationships. He must be committed to the people of God. We see this taught very clearly in John chapter 10, where Jesus teaches us about the opposite being true for false leaders. He says in verses 11 and 13, I am the good shepherd, shepherd gives his life for the sheep but a hireling, he who is not a shepherd one who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them the hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep so notice Jesus is saying there is he's saying that a false leader of God's people someone who's not a credible leader when difficult times come they will go. They will just leave because they don't care about the people of God. But a real leader doesn't do that. A real leader sticks around. A real leader is prepared to go through the difficult times in whatever God calls him to in his ministry because he cares about the people of God the same way that Jesus does. So a real leader is committed to these relationships. He's not up in his ivory tower. He's down where the people are. He knows the condition of his flocks, as it says in Proverbs. He knows their needs. He knows their difficulties. He knows the, 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 the development that they are growing in the Lord in. And he's there. He cares for them. He prays with them. He teaches them. He counsels them even through the difficult times. And this is exemplified in Paul and his co-workers. But I want you to notice that he doesn't just speak of here the commitment of the leader to the congregation. He also speaks of the commitment, listen, this is important, of the congregation to the leader. That the congregation is called to be committed relationally to the leaders of the church. You see this clearly written in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, where it says, Obey those who rule over you, and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do it with joy, and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Now, if you're going to submit to someone, and you're going to obey someone, you must be committed to them relationally. And I want you to know in here this morning that Jesus calls you, if you don't feel you're called to leadership, to be committed relationally to the leaders within the church. And do you know why that is? Well, it's because God wants to use you to grow the leaders in your church to become more like Jesus. And the reason why this is, is, brothers and sisters, and this is really important, is because John, myself, Joe, Neil, we're all sinners. We're not perfect. We sin every day. We still need to grow in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God wants to use you to help us to do that. And I want to ask you the question this morning. Are you committed relationally to the leaders of this church? Or are you just waiting for us to make a mistake and then you'll go? Are you waiting for us to hurt you and then you'll be like, okay, I'm just going to go? Because I can guarantee you that we will make mistakes. We will make mistakes in leadership. We will make mistakes in teaching. We will make mistakes in our counseling and relationships with you but that's because we're sinners and because God wants to use those things listen to grow us to become more like Jesus it's this beautiful thing that is in the scriptures of the pastor the congregation or the leadership team and the congregation growing together like this it's truly amazing it's incredible and God calls you to commit to that But there's also something else I want to mention about this relational commitment because it's obvious, I think, that the pastor is called to be committed relationally to the congregation and I think it's also obvious that the congregation should be committed to the leaders of the church relationally. But there's another commitment relationally we're called to and that's to each other. And I want to demonstrate this to you by asking you to think about the person next to you. You don't have to look at them, you don't have to admire their clothes or whatever, but I just want you to think about them, and I want you to think about these scenarios. What if it went really bad in this church fellowship? Would you still be committed relationally to the person next to you? What if it gets really bad in our society and persecution increases? Would you still be committed relationally to the person next to you? What if there's bad things between you and the person next to you? Would you still be committed relationally to that person? Because that's what Jesus calls you to. He calls you to be committed to any brother or sister, no matter what. I mean, we see this very clearly in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, where it says, Therefore, as the elect of God... Holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. It's a very high calling that we're called to relationally to each other. And why does Jesus call us to that? Well, it's because when we commit relationally to each other in this way, things begin to happen in our hearts. This was um, shown to me this week at church camp. And by the way, church camp was great. I really enjoyed it, and I'd encourage you to come next year if you didn't come. But it was such a blessing to be there, and such an encouragement to be around God's people for a long period of time. But do you know what else I found? I should say me and Emma. We found that actually we were being convicted of bad attitudes we have been shown actually how we are still very sinful. And Jesus, I believe, was using that commitment that we had to our church in that time to show me that actually when we get together like that, God grows the people of God. I mean, i never forget something that Frankie said to me once, and I hope you don't mind me saying this, Frankie. But... Um, <laughs> But Frankie gave me this absolutely brilliant analogy of the church and it's always stuck with me. He said to me that the church is a bit like God taking a plastic bag and putting all the believers in there and closing the bag and shaking us up and down. And you know, when we're committed relationally, we do bang against each other. Boom, boom, boom. I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't like, you know, all these things. But when we commit to forgive and to love. In that reality, we mold each other to become more like Christ. And that's truly a great thing, brothers and sisters. Now, I'm the first one to know that relationships are difficult. If I'm being completely honest with you and transparent in the flesh, sometimes I'm very cynical about relationships. Sometimes I find relationships really quite difficult. And I think, how on earth, Lord, Am I going to love people this way? How on earth am I going to be committed relationally to people this way? But I do believe that Paul brings something up in these verses that I think will free us from that kind of discouragement. And that is that, listen, these relationships are a process. They take time. When you first meet another believer, it's not going to be perfect straight away. Look at what he says. He talks about this thing or this doctrine that they understand, that they've understood it previously in part and that they will until the end in verse 14. And what he's talking about there is the doctrine of relational commitment because that's what is in the context here. He's saying that they have understood this doctrine in part in the relationship that he's had with them, but they're going to grow in it as they go on to the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what's going to happen with us. As we relate to each other, as we, you know, go to home groups, as we meet in each other's houses, God is going to encourage us to grow in relationships, and that's a real prayer for me, um, for this fellowship, because I believe, honestly, brothers and sisters, that as a fellowship, if we really want to grow and see what God wants to do through us and in us, we have to make the decision as individuals to commit relationally to the church, we need to see the core of the church grow. What I mean by that is people who come along on the Sundays knowing that actually Servants Church is where God has called them to be for the long term. No matter what, whether it's bad, whether it's good, whether it's average, whether it's mundane, this is the church that I'm called to. Because I believe if you have that in your heart, you are more likely to commit relationally to your brothers and sisters. So that's the second thing. A man who has credible leadership is a man who's committed to relationships. So moving on, as we get into this last section from verse 15 to the second verse of chapter 2, we're going to see the third and final quality of character that makes a man a credible leader in the church. And that quality is a man who's led by the Spirit of God. A man who's led by the Spirit. Now, the reason why Paul's bringing this up is because we have to understand something specific about the historical background of Paul's movements to and from the Corinthian church. Because you won't understand these verses without going into this in a bit more detail. When Paul wrote this letter, he had visited the Corinthian church twice. The first time was when he planted the church on his second missionary journey which is discussed in Acts chapter 18. And the second time he visited the church was on his third missionary journey when he was based in Ephesus. And what happened was, was Paul wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians answering some of the questions that the church had about church life and he sent Timothy, uh, I think it was before the letter, to deal with some of these issues face-to-face with the church. And what happened was Timothy went back to Paul after the letter had been sent and after they'd read it, and he said, Paul, you know, they haven't really received this letter very well. They're not really listening to what you're saying in the letter. They haven't disciplined the guy who's committing the sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians 5. It's not really a good situation there. And Paul said, right, okay, if that's the case, I'm going to go myself, and I'm going to go and deal with the situation face to face with these guys. And so he set off from Ephesus and he went to Corinth with the intention to deal with these issues that were there. And after he had dealt with them, his intention was then to go north into Macedonia and to disciple some of the churches there. And then he wanted to go back to Corinth for a third time on his way to Judea to collect some money, money to go and give to the poor Jewish Christians in Israel but unfortunately what happened was when he went to Corinth the second time to deal with his issues face to face something happened to Paul that gave him great sorrow gave him great grief and it's likely that the man who committed sexual immorality in the church stood up against Paul and insulted him publicly in front of the rest of the believers and Paul left the church with great sorrow. He still went up to um, Macedonia and then he decided when he was in Macedonia, I'm not going back a third time because he was too sorrowful. He had too much grief in his heart. And so he went back to Ephesus and he did not go back to Corinth. And what began to happen was that some of the false teachers, these false apostles, began to accuse Paul of not being led by the Spirit that he was actually being led by his emotions, he was being led by the flesh, and actually he may even be led by the devil. They're accusing him of being potentially led by demons. And so this is why Paul is bringing up this third quality of character, because he wants to deal with these accusations head-on. And he does that, or he starts off to do that in verse 17, where he asks couple of questions he says therefore when I was planning this did I do it lightly or the things I planned do I plan according to the flesh that with me there should be yes yes and no no and he's asking these questions he's saying look when I planned to come to you again for a third time did I do it with fickleness which is what that word lightly means there where I make one decision there and then I change my mind and then he's a bit more general in the second something wrong with my, uh anyway, we'll go acoustic. Um, generally, with his ministry, and he's basically saying, look, when I plan things, do I do it by the sinful nature? And when he says, do I do it so that it's yes, yes, and no, no, my belief is that he's making reference there to what Jesus said in the Gospels, When Jesus said, don't swear by anything or don't make an oath, so that your yes is always yes and your no is always no, because if it's either or and it flits back and forth, then that's of of the devil. And he's bringing these accusations up because he really wants to get these guys to focus on this. This is really important. Because this still happens today. People go into churches and they accuse leaders of not being led by the Spirit. There may be some of you in here that might be thinking that about me, or about John, or about other leaders in the church. You may have your own agenda, but the point I'm trying to make is is that people go into churches all the time and they accuse leaders of not being led by the Spirit. So, how on earth do you know when one of your leaders is being led by the Spirit or not? And this is what Paul's going to talk about for the rest of these verses. And he's going to bring up three things. And I would like you, if you have the ability, to, to make note of this. Because I'll be honest, I do think this kind of thing is going to increase. We have to be aware that when a church is becoming more fruitful, the devil will try and oppose that church. And one of the ways that he does it is by accusing the leaders of not being led by the Spirit. And you guys need to have the tools to be able to know in your heart and be fully convinced that we are being led by the Spirit. So let's look at these three things. So he he brings up the first thing in verses 18 and 19. 19 and 20, where he says, But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him are men to the glory of God through us. And so the first way that you know that your leader is led by the Spirit is by him preaching A consistent gospel message. What Paul's saying in these verses is he's saying, look, when we preach the word of God to you, we preach the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And all the promises in Jesus about salvation are always yes. They're always yes and amen. Jesus is always the only way to salvation. And so these men, they always preached the message that said that Jesus was the Messiah, that he came to the earth as a man, that he was God, that he went to the cross to die for the sins of the world, that he rose again on the third day, that he ascended into heaven and he's coming back one day to rule on this earth. That was the message that they preached all the time in every single church that they went to, in every single region that they went to. And Paul says, the reason why that gives credibility to me, the reason why that shows that I'm being led by the Spirit, is because my message is in the same characteristic of God. There's something about my message that shows something about God, and he tells us that in verse 18 where he says, but as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. And what this means is is that Paul's saying, look, the message that we spoke to you was just like God is when he's faithful. Or as the King James Version says, when God is true. Don't you know in here this morning, brothers and sisters, that God doesn't lie? That he cannot lie? That the words that he speaks to you in the Bible are always true? That they will always come about because he said it? That the message of Jesus in the Bible is always consistent because God has spoken it, inspired By the Spirit of God through men. And Paul's saying our message is the same as this characteristic of God. It was always the same. It was always consistent. It was always true. It was always bearing fruit in people's lives. And this is in direct contrast to the false teachers or the false apostles. Because what they were doing in Corinth was they were beginning to add things to the gospel like legalism. Or take things away from the gospel like repentance. And you see, when you add things to the gospel, or you take things away from the gospel, those things become your focus. Listen to what I'm saying. This is really important. When you add legalism to the gospel, your focus becomes legalism. When you take repentance away from the gospel, your focus becomes the so-called freedom that that gives you. And Jesus, listen, is not your focus anymore. Those things are your focus. And if you're doing that, Jesus sometimes is the saviour, sometimes he's not. The gospel sometimes is yes, the gospel is sometimes no. This is the characteristic of false teachers, and it's been that way for the last 2,000 years. But Paul wasn't like that. He didn't add to the gospel, he didn't take away from the gospel. His gospel was always Jesus 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 It was always he is the only way to salvation and you're saved by faith through his grace that was his message so that's the first thing you can know about your leader is does he preach a consistent gospel because the spirit will always preach a consistent gospel the second thing is found in verses 20 and 21, where we read the following, sorry, 21 and 22, where he says, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And so, what I want you to notice in these two verses is Paul goes away from the message that he preaches. And he goes on to what God has done for him and his co-workers. He says that God has established them with the Corinthian church. God has anointed them. God has sealed them. And the idea behind sealing there is like, you know when you send a letter and you use a bit of hot wax. And you put that hot wax on the underside of the envelope and you stamp it. And that stamp always has a mark of identity on it. That's what he's speaking of here that God has sealed their ministry with the identification of Christ. And then when it says there that God has given them the Spirit in their hearts as a guarantee, that's a reference to them being given the new birth or being born again. And he says that that is a guarantee. And what he's speaking of there is where in the Jewish marriage system, what used to happen was when the engagement took place, the father of the bridegroom would go to the father of the bride And he would pay that man some money. And that money would be like a contractual agreement that he wasn't going to give his daughter to anyone else. And then the father and the bridegroom would go away, they'd prepare the wedding, and then they would come back. And because that money had been paid, the marriage would take place. And that's what Jesus does with us when he gives us the Spirit in our hearts. It is a down payment, it's a contractual agreement... (laughs) that he's gone away to heaven for a while to prepare a place for us, but he's going to come back. He's going to claim the church as his bride and we're going to be with him forever. Hallelujah. But what I want you to notice in these verses, and what this is what the Spirit wants to show us, is that Paul, listen, was a man who was completely dependent upon God in every area of his life. He was completely dependent upon the Spirit in every area. In his salvation, in in him being raised up to leadership, in him being enabled to carry out his ministry, he was completely dependent and submissive to the work of the Spirit in his life. And he's saying, look, this brings credibility to me that I'm led by the Spirit because Jesus was exactly the same. What do we know about Jesus from the Gospels? Well, he was baptized by the Holy Spirit... And he was in complete submission, listened to the Father's will for him on earth. Jesus led and he lived his life in submission. And Paul's saying, I do exactly the same. My co-workers do exactly the same. I'm living a life of submission, therefore I am led by the Spirit. And often false teachers, false apostles don't do this, do they? What they do is they use the Holy Spirit for their own agenda. They command the Spirit to do certain things. To create their own kingdoms. That is not the mark of a real leader. A real leader is one who is in complete submission to the work of the Spirit in their lives. And Now quickly, we're coming to the end of our sermon. In verses 23-24 and the first two verses of chapter 2, we see the third and final thing that shows us how someone or a minister is led by the Spirit. Paul starts off in verse 23 by saying, Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul, that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. So what he's saying there is the reason why he didn't go back to Corinth when he said he was going to was because he he wanted to spare the Corinthian believers. Spare them from what? Well, turn over to verse one. It says, But I determined this within myself that I would not come again to you in sorrow. So what Paul didn't want to do, or what he wanted to spare the believers from, was the fact that he was grieving. He was grieving over the fact that he'd been publicly insulted whilst he was at Corinth, and he did not want to go back to Corinth with that same heart. And he says that if he had done that, in verse 2, for if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? And that's really simple what Paul's saying there. He's saying that if he went back to Corinth with sorrow in his heart, he would feel more sorrow when he left because he'd make the Corinthian believers sorrowful. There's something about this, I think, that is key for leaders in the church. And that is that, you know, ministry is difficult and there are times when people are going to hurt leaders and actually there are times when we feel sorrowful. I'm sure John's felt like that a few times over the last 11 years. (laughs) But there's wisdom sometimes in leaders when they feel like that, taking a step back, taking a step back to pray through that emotion. And I believe this confirms why it's really important that the Bible, I think, portrays that the best biblical leadership in church is team leadership. Because if you have the responsibility on one man all the time, he's going to be really sorrowful. (laughs) And he's going to depress the church. But the reality is, is, if you have a team of leaders, they're not all going to feel sorrowful all at once. So one can step back and one can step forward. And I just think that's a great provision of God in the leadership of the church. Because of his grace, he wants the church of Jesus Christ to not be sorrowful. And we see that what really marks a real credible leader who's been led by the Spirit is back in verse 24 of chapter 1 where it says that Paul and his fellow workers were workers for the joy of the Corinthian church. And so this is the third and final way that you know that your leader is being led by the Spirit and that it is that his goal is for you to grow in the joy of the Lord. He doesn't want you to grow in sorrow. He wants you to grow in joy. He wants you to grow in an appreciation of just how much Jesus Christ has done for you and for you to rejoice in that, always. It's not his goal to depress you, to drag you down, a real leader, a real minister who's been led by the Spirit, his goal is to lift you up. When you're feeling down, he will come to you, anointed by the Spirit, and bring you back to Jesus, bring you back to the joy of the Lord. Now, the joy of the Lord, when I say that word or that phrase, will bring up lots of different emotions in you guys. It will bring up lots of definitions of joy in your heart. And I want to just spend a few minutes thinking about what the joy is here that Paul is talking about, because I think it's really, really important that we get our heads around this. The word for joy there is kara in the Greek. And its definition really, it should be up on the screen, is an emotion of great delight or happiness caused by something exceptionally good. That is what joy is. And when you look at the doctrine of joy in the New Testament, you see something really important. That joy belongs to Jesus. That joy is possessed by Jesus. He is, the, you could say, the originator of joy. And the reason why that is, is because, listen, Jesus for the entirety of eternity has lived in a perfect relationship with the Father. God the Father has always loved and always delighted in Jesus. And in turn, Jesus rejoices over that. He's rejoiced over that love that the Father has had for him forever and ever and ever. And the good news is, brothers and sisters, is that when we get saved, you know what happens? Jesus gives you that joy. Jesus gives you his joy That joy that he's had forever in his relationship with the Father, he gives to every single one of you. Because you have entered into that fellowship in the Godhead. You've entered into that forever. And brothers and sisters, that is a truly joyous thing. Do you feel joy about that this morning? Do you feel joy that the Father loves you as much as he loves Jesus? I mean, how much... Incredibleness is in that statement. The Father loves you as much as he loves Jesus. There's nothing greater than that. There's nothing that should give you more joy than that reality. And Jesus has given every single one of you that joy. If you don't feel that joy in here this morning, then may I suggest to you that you're looking in the wrong places for joy. And you need to go back to Jesus and say, Lord, you've given me this joy. You want it in me to the full. Help me to have this joy that you've given me, that you've experienced forever and ever. Amen. Hallelujah to that, Lord. Please grow us in this joy. This is lacking in us. It's lacking because we put our focus on the things of the world. It's lacking because we have our focus in the wrong place. Maybe we're looking to our spouse for joy, or our children, or our work, or our pastor, or our ministry, or whatever. You're looking in the wrong place. You're not starting in the right place. The right place is to start with the relationship that the Father has had with Jesus forever. And then you will find real joy in your wife Real joy in your children, real joy in your ministry, your work, and it will get better and better and better. And this is what God has called us to. God has called us not to be a sorrowful people, but to be a joyous people. Let us live in that reality, brothers and sisters. I need to grow in this. I need to grow in this joy. I want to grow in this joy, and I hope you do in here this morning. Brothers and sisters, we've seen today that a credible leader is one who has a godly character. He is one that models the life of Christ. He's one that is committed to relationships and he's one that is led by the Spirit. I want to leave you with some truths in verse 24. Verse 24 says, not that we have dominion over your faith, but are fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. What this verse teaches us in closing is it's not essential for you as a believer to have a good pastor. It's not essential for you because pastors don't have dominion over your faith. Jesus only has dominion over your faith. You stand by faith. You don't stand by the quality of your leader. But what credible leaders do is, even though they're not essential, they are very, very useful to the church. When there aren't credible leaders in the church, the church diminishes. In number, in quality, in fruitfulness. The church doesn't die, but it will Be less fruitful. So even though it's not essential for you to have a credible leader, it is a very good thing to have a credible leader. So pray. Pray for me. Pray for John. Pray for Joe. Pray for Neil. Pray for the other leaders that will be raised up in this church so that we can be real, credible, Jesus-centered leaders. Amen.